great to be back. Good to see you. I heard you guys had an amazing week last week. Eight baptisms, is that right? Yes. Praise God. I was very jealous when I got the text uh, over there in Seattle. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I had the privilege last week of uh, spending a few days uh, in Seattle at, a, at a, an amazing church called Mars Hill. Don't ask me why it's called that. I don't really understand why completely. Something to do with the Bible or something. But um, uh, led by a guy called Mark Driscoll, uh, a church which has seen thousands of people in the last 10 years come to know our wonderful Jesus. Uh, and uh, it was amazing because it was an open door. There was myself and a few other guys from New Frontiers, the family of churches uh, that we are part of here at City Church, were invited over. And it was two-way traffic in the sense that we were there drooling over all that God has done, but also um, that they, as a, as a movement, uh, really uh, feel that God has impressed upon their hearts a new frontiers, like a kinship, a connecting of uh, their movement, Acts 29, uh, which comes out of Mars Hill, but also new frontiers. And they said two things which I thought I'd mention, which I think were quite encouraging. First of all, Mark Driscoll said uh, that he believed Terry Virgo, who is the guy who leads the movement we're part of, to quote him, is the greatest leader of a movement in the world that he knows of. And this guy is one of the most influential Christians in America, in fact, in the world. He knows a lot of uh, Christian men and women. And he said that about our wonderful, humble movement leader. So I thought that was encouraging. But the second thing that he said that was so exciting, which is why many of us from over at New Frontiers have been invited over there, was that they feel that, um, that New Frontiers has, uh, by God's grace, uh, experienced something of a revelation about what true charismatic worship should be. So uh, in America, if you say you're charismatic, that kind of means you're mental. Basically, it kind of means you're really, really hysterical, overly emotional, kind of crazy. Uh, whereas in here in Britain, we would, we would be like, yeah, I'm charismatic, so what? You know, it's not a weird thing. And, uh, and they, they, really, they really love the kind of worship that we take for granted uh, in terms of the gifts of the Spirit, like that prophecy that we heard earlier on just happening, seemingly very naturally. It wasn't hyped up, but God speaking through a normal person to bring encouragement to us. So I just felt that we, we needed to receive that. I wanted you guys to know that, that we can often look as a church, can't we, at the things that we're not doing quite as well as we'd want, with, oh, we wish we'd see this and this. Uh, and of course, we need to keep on going for gold, as it were, seeing more of God come into this city through us. But I just came back thinking, what a privilege, what an amazing privilege that we wouldn't just be alive in, uh, in the UK, in one of the wealthiest nations in the world, having you know, free health care and all that other stuff, but we'd be part of a church that was part of a movement that God's hand was so on. So I hope you feel encouraged. Thank you so much for your prayers. I know many of you were praying for me. Thank you so, many, so, much, so much for many of you who got around Josie and the girls in my absence and were there. Uh, you know, her week was like chock-a-block full of girls and women coming over, spending time with her, giving the girls toys and just being with her. Thank you so much. That is hugely wonderful to know that when God opens up an opportunity for me to go somewhere, that I know that you guys are going to support me by supporting her. So thank you guys. It was an amazing trip. I believe God has given us some amazing things to think about as an eldership uh, that we can, I think, will help us to grow, to see this church go to where God wants it to in the coming years. So if you've got a Bible, let's turn to God's wonderful, wonderful word. Genesis, the book right at the beginning of, uh, of the Bible. If you haven't got a Bible today, it's okay. It will come up on the screen behind me. If you're new here today, it's just worth mentioning that a few weeks ago we started a new series, dramatically entitled, are you ready for it? The Rescue Begins, which, thank you, yes, which is, uh, which is a title for Genesis 12 to 25. Simply put, we believe that if God was just a God of justice, that the Bible really should end at Genesis 11. So our Bibles would be rather thin. But, as you may have noticed, our Bibles are not rather thin, are they? They're big and chunky, depending on how, sort of, you know, how big your print is, etc. Uh, and the, the fact is, is this is because, put simply, the rest of the Bible, from Genesis 12 onwards, put as simply as possible as this, is that our God launched the most undeserved and yet most glorious rescue plan in Genesis 12. He did it in the form of speaking promises of rescue to a normal guy called Abraham. And he said to him, through you and your wife, having a, a child, even though you're old and your wife is barren, you're going to have a miracle child. And then that child will one day marry and have another child, etc., etc., etc. And one day, there will be one born through your lineage that will save the world. And we know who that is, don't we? What's his name? Jesus. 
Jesus, yes, but let's not rush on to that. Let's go back to the Old Testament where we're, we're seeing the foundations of this extraordinary rescue plan opening up. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at an enemy of faith. Can I have a boo? Boo. What was it? Im- no, no, it wasn't fit. It was impatience. Good to see my sermon had a, a lasting impact on you. It was two weeks ago. We looked at impatience and how if we are people of impatience, then we can actually hold up and slow up the rescue plan of God through us to this world around us. But today, we're going to be looking at a friend of faith. Hurrah, I hear you say. That of, thank you, yes, that of prayer. So we're going to read here from Genesis 18 and verse 16 in just a moment. But I don't know if you're anything like me. I see in Scripture all the time this pumping message about prayer. That prayer is hugely important. It's not a little issue. It's not a little sort of add-on. It's a massively important issue. You see it probably most clearly in the life of Jesus. Jesus, fully God, so the Bible says, and fully man, and yet was a man above everything, perhaps devoted to prayer. A man that even the night before he was crucified was given what? To prayer. A man who even when he was on the cross, what was he doing? He was praying. And yet, even though I see throughout Scripture this huge importance of prayer in my own life, I just see so often this kind of shallow, Tom-centered, sporadic attempt at prayer. I see in the life of Jesus and the early apostles this persistent, consistent, robust prayer for other people. And yet so often I look at my own life and if I do pray, it's generally when I feel like it and it often ends up being about me. I see not just in scripture, but I see in fact through church history the last couple of thousand years. What is the thing that again and again has been tied to some of the biggest moves of God throughout the world? You know what it is? It's prayer. It's just a no-brainer. And yet I see again and again in my own life this, just this lack of devotion to prayer for others. I just see it so consistent in my life. Maybe, maybe one or two of you can kind of identify with it. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you're someone who, like me, at times you start off really going for it, you know? You're just feeling up for it for whatever reason. You start praying for your neighbours. You start praying for your friends. And then suddenly, I don't know, the phone rings. Suddenly you remember that thing you've got to do. And suddenly what you were praying for goes out of your window. And suddenly this thing becomes all important to you. And one minute you're like there praying before the living God for those around you who don't know Jesus. And the next minute you're scribbling in your diary or you're picking your nose or you're just drifting off to sleep or whatever. Does anyone here identify with me? Thank you. What is the deal with that? What is it? You see, the Bible, church history, prayer for others is of massive, significant, paramount importance. And yet, what do I see in my own life? Pathetic, Tom-focused, sporadic prayer at best at times. So what I'm trying to say is this, is that there is a little bit of attention, a little bit of a gap, between what the Bible says our life should be like and what my life is like. And I'm sure, if you're honest, many of you here who are Christians would say, yeah, actually I get that. I see that. And you see, even if you would say you're someone who you think compared with others around you, you're pretty good at prayer, the reality is when we look at Scripture and when we look at church history, we are still humbled. When we look at the devotion of persistent, consistent prayer. So are we doomed? Is that it? No, I hear you cry. Dave Campbell uh, says no in his head. We know here today that actually the Bible gives us hope. Because we are not the first and we won't be the last people to actually struggle with prayer. And what we're going to look at today is an amazing man. This man that we've been looking at, Abraham. He's now called Abraham rather than Abraham. We're going to be seeing today a man who understood, who understood and gave himself to prayer. And we will see some amazing lessons in his life. So let's read them from verse 16. Then the men set out from there. Now, just to say at this point, the men, bear with me here, are two angels and we think God in human form. Okay? We won't go into that right now. You might be thinking, what the heck? But just bear with me, okay? 
Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. What do we know about Sodom? Sodom is a, it's not a good place, okay? It's kind of synonymous with sin, evil, wickedness, godlessness, okay? It's, it's throughout Scripture, you see Sodom, Sodom, Sodom. It's like this, it's a real place, it was a real place, but it crystallized and it epitomized a place that was in rebellion against God, okay? So now these two angels and God are turning towards this place called Sodom. It says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. But then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, well, I'll know. And so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose... uh, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous spare is the wicked. Far be that from you, so shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, okay. If I find at Sodom 50 righteous people in this city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham answered and said, Lord, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city because of the five that are lacking? And he said, no, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose just 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh Lord, don't be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. This is staggering. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose only 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of the 20 then, I will not destroy it. And he said, oh Lord, oh let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once, suppose just ten are found there. And he answered, for the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. God, we thank you, you are a God who is here. Your name is Emmanuel, God with us. Father, we just want to ask in these few minutes we have that you would, you just do heart surgery today, Lord. You do heart surgery upon every person here, that you would come and only as you can do, the great surgeon, you would just open us up, Lord, today. Change us, Lord. Change us, change us. Lord, I don't want to preach just so we remember things. I don't want to preach so we laugh. I want to preach that so that we would be changed. That is why we're sitting here. We want to be changed, God, even when it's painful. We say, Spirit of God, Spirit of God, come and be our teacher in these few minutes. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So we see here one of the most wonderful, helpful pictures of a weak man like Tom Shaw, but a man who understood that prayer works. He understood that prayer actually works works. How did he do it? Three quick things we're going to look at here today. Three things that we have to understand about the situation we're in if we will be like Abraham. Number one, he really listens. Say he really listens. He really listens. Number two, he really acts. Say he really acts. He really acts. And number three, it really matters. Say with me, it really matters. It really matters. Okay, so what am I saying here? First of all then, What we see here, the first huge key for us, if we're going to be a people who grow in prayer, that we might take our place in this great rescue plan of God, is we have to be totally convinced in our very core that God really listens. 
Now, I know that's an obvious, simple point, but it's huge. It's just absolutely massive. You see, I think, when we think about why would we ever doubt, you know, to, to be a Christian, one of the things we're saying is, is that we believe we have a relationship with God. That's a pretty big thing to say. And so intrinsic within that is we are saying that God listens to us. The trouble is, I think, as Christians, or maybe it's just me, it's so often in my heart of hearts, I doubt that. I just doubt it. I don't even know I doubt it, but I know I doubt it. Why? Because I so often don't give myself to prayer that what I'm saying is, unconsciously, is I don't think he really listens. I don't think he really listens. And why would we do that? I tell you why I think above everything else. Don't miss this. The reason we so often don't pray, because we don't think he's actually listening, intrinsically when you boil everything down, has to do with our identity in God. It is how we see ourselves as Christians, if you're a Christian here today. Most of us have experienced in our life some level of rejection. I know at school, um, I was rejected, okay? I was someone who had big fuzzy hair, big national health glasses, loads of spots, was really keen on work. You can just see what's happening here. There's a bit of a recipe for rejection, if I'm honest with you. School is a bit of a ruthless place. And uh, I wasn't sporty. I was quite good at squash, but that's not really the coolest of games, is it? Let's be honest. So there were times you know, in the PE class, there was times, subtly, but still real, where I felt real rejection. And it was horrendous. And most of us, even if you're good looking, you're intelligent, you're cool, you're never struggled in life, most of us have experienced some level of rejection. Now why am I saying this? I'm saying this because this, is that when we become a Christian, what actually happens is, in essence, we're saying we are now accepted by God. We are now accepted by Him. But often we carry into this newfound relationship with God, unconsciously, the baggage of previous rejection. We've experienced rejection, and therefore when we come to trusting God, that He actually listens to us unconsciously often, we are actually prone to not fully open ourselves to trusting. Why? Because we haven't actually come through on understanding our new grace-given identity in God. And so what we see here, before we see any actual praying, any actual action, what we see here is a foundation of grace that God lays. We see in these opening verses an extraordinary thing that we can actually miss if we don't slow down and look over it. What we see here is that God deals with any temptation in Abraham for him to doubt that God is actually interested in him by laying upon him an extraordinary layer of grace. What do I mean? Let me show you here. We see, for example... We see in verse 19, God says these words. For I have chosen him. I have chosen him. Now the situation is this, as I said. There's God here. Okay, let's have you three guys up quickly. Let's jump up. Right, okay. So, Hugh, you are God, okay? Claire and Tim, you are angels, right? You're standing here. I need one other person. Martin to go, quick. Good man. Here we go. Now, who's God? Which one was God? You, God. Right, okay, you're talking to the angels. You're standing here, overhearing, over, over Okay. Now what we see here is that God, speaking to the, to the two angels, fully aware that Abraham is standing here listening, he says to the two angels, he says, For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household, household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Thank you so much. Let's sit down. Now it's important that we visualize this, because we can miss it. What he is doing here, first of all, the first way he is reassuring him of his love and acceptance of him is he wants Abraham to know how much he loves him. Now, if I was at a dinner party uh, with, say, Josie, last night I was at Jeff and Miriam's, so I was at Jeff and Miriam's with Josie, and I said, you know, in a sneaky moment, Josie, I love you. You're wonderful. I love you so much. She would feel loved. She would feel loved, I'm sure. However, if I said to Jeff and Miriam with Josie overhearing, I love Josie more than words can describe. She is an amazing woman. I am so blessed to have her. She's a woman who lays her life down for me. She's a woman who is just incredible. She's sexy, she's intelligent, she's funny, she runs after God. She's an amazing mother. How would she feel? Pretty good, I think, is what you say in your British quiet way. She would feel so much more loved because I'm saying it to them in her presence. 
than if I just said it to her. And what we see here is God is doing the equivalent. He's saying these amazing words of reminding Abraham about the promises over him, but he's doing it wonderfully to the angels so that Abraham is like, wow, God is saying it to these two angels in, in public. He's deliberately trying to communicate to Abraham, even in the way he does it, amazing love. Why? Because he doesn't want him to have any sense of lack of confidence that God has accepted him. But then look at what God is actually saying about Abraham to these angels. He says here this phrase, for I have chosen him. Now you'll see a footnote in your Bible at the bottom. It says, or known. In the Hebrew, this phrase of being known or chosen is synonymous with each other. What he's saying is this. Is he's saying, I took the initiative in this whole relationship. The only reason this Abraham, who is just as much a sinner as anyone else, can have this amazing relationship with me is because I chose him out of grace. I have known him. As it says in the book of Ephesians, he chose us in him before the foundations of the earth to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before God made Jupiter, he picked you, if you're a Christian here today. Isn't that awesome? He's saying to these guys in public, I have known him, I have chosen him, I have, out of grace, come into this relationship. And this is significant because, you see, if God is the one who took the initiative in starting that relationship with Abraham, is he going to then suddenly stop? God's word says that he is faithful to continue and to complete that which he starts. He started Abraham on this journey, and he today, in that moment, as we've read, he is reassuring him publicly that he has known him, that he is for him, and that he has no, no room to doubt God's love and grace for him. But then we thirdly see a third way in which God brings huge love towards him in verse 18. He says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So track with me here. He's saying here, in front of these guys publicly to make him feel really loved, I chose him, I started this relationship with him, therefore he can be completely secure that I will complete it. But secondly, I didn't just get him into this relationship with me just to be nice, although God is nice. He's doing it actually to then make him into a mighty nation. I, as I said at the beginning, that his son, his miracle son, would then start another family, would start another family, then over time... This family would indeed be so big that it would actually be a nation. Now this word nation here is of real importance. You see, the Bible talks about us as the church being the family of God. It's true. It's partly, it's partly true. And what does a family speak about? It talks about internal unity. It means that we're close. It means that we love each other. But when it talks about a nation, it includes that internal unity add something new to it. It also is implying an external influence. It is saying that we are not just the family of God, we are, but also we are a holy nation, as it says in 1 Peter. And that is hugely significant, because a nation has external influence on the other nations and peoples and cities around it. And he's saying here, listen to these two angels with him hearing, I'm going to, through this man, make a mighty nation. A nation that will externally influence the world around it. And it says here, he will be a blessing. That this nation, this people of God, would be a mighty external positive influence on the world around. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. He is saying to Abraham, you will be the father of a nation that will be the most blessing nation in this entire world. That the people of God would always be a nation synonymous with positive blessing on the world around them. That was God's always passion for the people of Israel. It says in Isaiah 2, it says that the nations would be drawn to the people of God. That they would be drawn to them. And we see this here. We see this, this incredibly important point here. And so what I'm trying to say is this, is that we start this morning... With God massively reassuring Abraham. He is here saying, listen, I want you to know that you have every confidence I'm a God who listens. I've chosen you. 
I've placed you in a mighty mission to be a nation to the ends of the earth. How would you ever doubt that I would be a God who listens to you? Do you understand that we can put ourselves, if you're a Christian here, in the place of Abraham? That God speaks the same words of truth over you and me here today, if we're Christians. That we are called to be a people who are not insignificant in the environments in which God has placed us. We are called to be a people who corporately and individually, positively, externally influence the city, in the workplace in which you are, in the household in which you are, in the neighbourhoods in which you are, with your non-Christian family that you know. We are called to be salt and light. This is incredible. God is so passionate about hearing every cry of our hearts because he has invested the very mission to the ends of the earth through us. And when we really understand, when we actually start to have a revelation of the fact that God is listening to every single person's cry of their heart, it changes everything. I want to say, if if you're a non-Christian here today, I believe God hears, if you've ever prayed to him, I believe he hears that. I believe God hears every prayer, whether it's eloquent, whether it's not, it doesn't matter. But I do believe the Bible leads us to conclude that there is a special a special place in God's heart for his children, for those who have actually gone his way and, and placed their trust in Christ. You know, there's no doubt about it. You know, if I, when I've been to like play gym and there's like a hundred screaming toddlers running everywhere, I can hear their voices very clearly. But when Daisy pipes up or just cries out, she doesn't even have to be saying daddy. When I, I can hear her in a second, even Lily, a minute ago, when we were all making loads of noise, I heard her screaming her head off. I could hear it in a second. There is something that God, just in the heart of God, that is attuned to the cry of his children. And so many of us as Christians don't really get this. We don't understand that we can be so secure in God that God, we, we have the ear of the president. We have the ear of the president. And you know, the enemy, Satan, is real. And he loves to just chisel away at that trust and that faith in him. Really? You? You're not holy like the other guys in church. You haven't had a quiet time in two weeks. You can't talk to him. He's not listening to you. You joker. It doesn't matter. It's by grace. And when you understand that God is listening, it changes everything. I recently, at the end of a work day, was just packing up the stuff, just about to turn my computer off, and the, uh, the phone rang. It was Hazel, our administrator. Tom, uh, there's a call here for you. I was like, look, Hazel, I'm sorry, I'm late already. I've got to get home. I've got to have tea and bathe the kids. I've just got to go. She was like, no, Tom, honestly, I think you probably want to take this one. I was like, I'm late. I've got to go. And she was like, Tom, it's Terry Virgo. Terry Virgo is the leader of the movement I referred to earlier on. I was like, go! glory I was like put him through for Pete's sake you know the little light was flashing and I was like he must have been on hold for like three seconds I was like hi Terry how are you you know hustle Terry and he, he we were just going to have a quick chat and he wanted to talk about uh, the, the conference in the summer but this is the point when I realised Terence Virgo was on hold a second seemed like a lifetime I was like put him through <laughs> <laughs> Terry was on hold for like three seconds. Do you understand? God, God is on the line. God, he genuinely is yearning for his children. He listens. He's there ready and waiting for us to go, Bob, just want to check in with you. How are you? Bob, I love you. You're amazing. We need to be a people who understand like Abraham did. That genuinely he listens. Genuinely he listens. Even if in our past we have known rejection, we've known those things in our life that cause us to lack the trust that we need. God today is bringing revelation. He wants to bring revelation to us that actually when you became a Christian, it wasn't like a tweak. You were a new creation by grace. No more in condemnation to quote a song. Here in the grace of God I stand and I will break. You know, God is so good. And he's here today. He is listening. Do you believe it? We have got to believe it. Secondly, though, we see he really acts. So you might say, okay, Tom, you convinced me. I believe you, kind of, that God really listens. But 
But does he really act according to what I pray to him? Can I really believe that God, who sustains the entire universe, genuinely cares about my prayer to him? I mean, he might be listening, but it's one thing to be listening. It's another thing to say he's actually going to do anything in line with what I'm praying. What we see here is this scripture hits us like a a freight train with one wonderful answer, which is yes, yes, yes. Read with me here in verse 22. So God has said openly in front of Abraham, he's going to judge Sodom. And so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. I love this. But Abraham stood, sorry, still stood before the Lord. Now listen, this is what's happened. Point one is this. God has spoken his identity afresh over Abraham. You're my son, and through you, I'm going to start a people who will be a blessing to the whole of the world. Okay, remember that. That's huge. And you can imagine Abraham hearing it going, yes, you're right. That's my identity. I'm called to be one who actually is a positive, mighty bringer of blessing to all the world. And then in that context, with this identity ringing in his ears, picture the scene, God then says, knowing that Abraham's listening, okay, chaps, let's go and judge this wicked city, Sodom. And what we see here is Abraham, with this fresh identity that God has spoken over him, ringing in his ears, springs into action. Wait a minute. If I'm called to be one, that through me we see cities and nations blessed, and Sodom is just about to be incinerated, then wait a minute, I just need to get involved here. I just need to get involved because actually my identity as a person of God is that I'm actually to be one that through me, the nations and the cities around this world are blessed. And so we see here this amazing phrase. It says, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now it's so, so clever because in the, in the previous few verses when God and the angels has turned up and Abraham has got Sarah to make some food, you see the phrase in verse 8. It says, then he took the curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So the first instant of of Abraham standing, while God and these angels eat, he's standing, obviously, humbly, (laughs) hope the food's all right, bit of salt, bit of pepper, all okay, great, as they tuck into their, you know, Middle Eastern food. And he says he stood before the tree. But now we read of a different standing of Abraham. With this now identity spoken over him, It now says Abraham stood before the Lord. He's like, wait a minute. No longer is Abraham this humble, food-preparing, hi guys, Englishman. He is now a man who is standing, interceding for Sodom. He's now a man who's saying, Lord, you're about to bring judgment to this place. You've called me to be someone who's connected to you and can cry out to you, Lord, can I just bring this up with you? It's like he's standing there boldly like David before Goliath because God's identity is on him. It's, it's hilarious. Lily has just started walking. I was on the way to the airport. Can you believe it? Got a text from Josie. Lily's taking her first few steps. Oh, thanks, Lord. So Lily now can just about walk. And it's hilarious. Lily is just like, she is so fiery. She has just got a fire in her belly. And David's like twice her size. But Lily just stands there before her. She is absolutely unintimidated by her. She's like a little warrioress. And she stands there. And Daisy, you know, tries to push her over, but, but Lily just stands firm. And we see this kind of picture here of Abraham standing before God saying, Lord, Lord, let me just, let me just, let me just communicate with you. And we see him, says, he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What about if there's 50 righteous people? Lord, are you going to do it even then? And we see this amazing dialogue unfurl. And at the end of it, what we see here, amazingly, in verse 27, it says, so in verse 26, it says, And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will indeed spare it for the sake. Deal agreed. God is saying, he's not saying here, I'm going to overlook their sin. But what he is saying here is this, is that I will extend my patience. He wasn't saying, oh yeah, I'm going to treat as if they're not sinning. He's saying, I will give them a bit longer to turn to me. If, out of a whole city, there's just 50 people who in some way are going after me. That's an amazing deal. That's an amazing deal. We see here that Abraham has understood both his identity 
as one who is now able to speak to God. But secondly, we see here, he's understood God's identity. He says here, you are a just judge. Those are his words. He's saying, Lord, can I just, dare I say this to you, the living God, but is it just that you would sweep away righteous people with the unrighteous? He's saying, Lord, I know that you are a judge who is totally just. There is nothing in you that is imperfect or in any way biased. Lord, can I just say to you, are you sure that it's right that you would do this? And even though we know it's totally right, God says in his mercy and grace, okay, I've heard your prayer and I will act. I've heard the prayer of one man, one man on behalf of an entire city. And he says, I will change my course of action. This is extraordinary. This is extraordinary that in this room there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who can, without any hint of arrogance, say, you know God. And that when, when you cry to him, when you pray to him, he doesn't just listen, but actually he acts. He actually changes the course of which he was going to do when you pray. Now clearly, God will never do anything that is contrary to his nature. So as I said here, he wasn't going to overlook the sin, but he was going to extend his patience further. This is, this is mind-blowing. When we think about the fact that if you're a Christian, you are given the right to communicate to God, knowing he'll listen, but knowing he will act. It's so important we get this in our hearts. It's so important that we understand that one person praying can change an entire destiny of a city. One cell group that is passionately interceding for God, for people who don't know him, can change the destiny. One prayer evening where a hundred gather and cry out to God for his mercy, God acts. He actually acts when we pray to him. One normal person called Kim Bagley and Dan Izzitz, who are in this church, praying to God, achieves incredible things. I got this email this week. Tom, I thought you'd like to hear about this. Dan's sister, Bethan, is pregnant. And she's had some trouble in the past with pregnancy. So is being carefully watched at the hospital. She's due in May, so is quite far gone now, but still not safe, so they say. She went along for a general checkup on Friday. And four doctors measured her baby and told her it was way too small, some four weeks behind what it should be. This was obviously of huge concern for her and her family. So the Izzets prayed mightily. They prayed mightily. Dan's mum searched the scriptures on Saturday, found some verses that reassured the family and Dan's sister. She also read her Bible and found a verse that she felt God was telling her to trust him. They prayed mightily, okay? They prayed knowing God would listen and that God would act. So two days later, on the Sunday, 48 hours after this baby was four weeks behind, after praying, she went along to the appointment on Sunday and four doctors again measured the baby. It had grown two centimetres in 48 hours. The doctors were baffled as was Dan's sister, and left the appointment being told that they were no longer concerned with the growth of the baby. Praise the Lord. Can we just thank God for that? We have a God who doesn't just listen. He actually acts. He actually acts. And often it takes... Life or death situations like that for us at times to go, well, there's nothing else I can do but pray. What's that about? Nothing else I can do. It should be our first thing that we do. We are busy people with phones and emails and TV and busy lives. But God has not changed. This is the way it has always been. For thousands of years, the scandalous, mighty privilege. And I want to say this. If you're anything like me, my prayers are often sporadic and about me. But what we're learning here is they need to be consistent, persistent about others. 
This was a prayer about someone else. It is our sacred obligation to be a people given to praying for the city. It isn't an optional thing when we feel like it. But when we know someone personally, we need to be a people who understand that God genuinely listens to the cry of his people and he acts. So firstly then, God really listens. Secondly, God really acts. And finally, and this is a serious weighty one, but it's here in scripture, is it really matters. You see, Abraham has got a great deal, okay? I think we'll all agree that. God was imminently going to judge this wicked, repulsive city, absolutely hell-bent on evil. And Abraham, because of his identity, says, Lord, will you extend patience? And God says, okay, done deal. If there's just 50 out of an entire city, 50 people who are in some way righteous, I will extend patience to give them a chance to turn to me. But what we see here finally in Abraham is something we mustn't miss. It wasn't enough for Abraham just to do a a power burst, a quick, Lord, 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 will you do it? Yes, okay, brilliant, 50 people. We see there's something in Abraham's soul that says, I'm going back again. He then says, but God, God, I'm just dust and ashes, but what about if there's, say, 45? And God's like, you cheeky thing, all right, if there's 45. And God's secretly like, yes, that's my boy, he's getting it. He's understanding what's happening here. God and man in relationship. And Abraham's like, Lord, forgive me. I know this is super cheeky. What about if this is 40? And God's like, God, all right, just 40. And we see this go back and forth. 30, whoa, 20, what, 10? And God, staggeringly, in his mercy, says, okay, if there is just 10 righteous people in that city, I will extend my patience further. This is amazing. Might I say it? Abraham was a wheeler dealer. He was someone who in a righteous sense knew that this relationship with God gave him total permission. In fact, God yearned for it, for relationship. It's not like a slot machine where he's like, boop, 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 50p in, coke can out, great. He's like, no, this is relationship. I'm here and my, in him the spirit of God was saying, I think there's more. And he went back to God. And he was a righteous wheeler dealer. You know, in Luke 18, it talks about the persistent widow. Jesus told this hilarious parable about a granny who is like, she's got, there's an unjust judge, again, this whole thing of judge, but an unjust one, and just through her persistence, she gets ju- justice. And Jesus is saying here, listen, if she got justice with an unjust judge through persistence, how much more will the people of God get justice when they pray to God who is a perfect judge. Persistence is huge. How many times did the people of God have to go around Jericho before the walls came down? Seven. Why not one? I don't know. Because God, in his mystery, loves to see that Jacob wrestling attitude in his people. Because in those moments, we actually get closer to God through the time that we spend saying, Lord, you've already already given me that answer, but Lord, may I dare to say X, Y, and Z? I think we can often be, if you're British here, I don't know, I just think often we're just not very good at being wheeler dealers with God in a good sense. My dad, bless him, I love him to bits, I remember as a young man, he's a drummer, he went to London in the 60s to go and buy a drum, uh, a snare drum, and uh, it's a famous story in our family, he went there, tried the snare drum, lovely snare drum, how much is the snare drum? It's 25, he said, no, he said his phrase was, I couldn't accept anything less than 25 quid. So my dad thinks for a few seconds, he goes, okay. Fair enough. I'll give you 28. I love him to bits, but he did not quite understand that you're in a haggle. You're in a kind of go, well, I'll give you 21. Oh, no, 24, 23, 22, 22 and a half. You know, he didn't quite understand that. He added to it. Bless him. I love you, Dad. Honor you. Respect to my dad. The point is, We can kind of be like that. We're just like, we don't understand that God actually has invited us, if you're a Christian here today, to be able to communicate with him and to to be on this journey together. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? There's times where you're praying for for someone and you just know that God's heard you. You You've been praying, you've been breaking through, and you go, yeah, I know God's heard me this time. But it takes time. It takes time and persistence. 
time and persistence. We are so instant in this nation, in this, in this age in which we live. Yeah, it takes time. It will never not take time. It took persistence. I love this. He got this. So we have to ask a question, and with this we're going to finish. Why was Abraham persistent? Why was it that he just went going, kept going? Why? I think it was partly because his nephew Lot and family were in Sodom. It says in in the New Testament, they were righteous people. They loved God. But they had got distracted and they got sucked into this city of sin. I think it was partly that. I think he loved them and he wanted them to be, to, to be, to be spared. I think the second reason was because he knew the character of the one that he was appealing to. A loving, merciful God. He knew that actually God would listen to his cries and would extend patience. But I think we can't get away from the fact that perhaps the most compelling reason why Abraham was motivated to persist in prayer was actually because he sensed in his heart the reality of the coming judgment. The reality of the coming judgment. If you were to turn to Genesis 19, you would read that even though, even though God has agreed that only if there's ten righteous people, he'll spare that city, the two angels then go down to Sodom. And you know what? They get to the city that God is wanting to extend patience to. And they go to go and get, to get Lot out of his house and his family. And whilst they're still there, the door is knocked on and it says the entire city, all the men from the city have come swarming to that place. Do you know what they want to do? They're there to rape the angels. These angels that look like men. It's a shocker. It's a shocker. They are there to have sex with them. It's horrific. It's in the Bible. And so you are left. I mean, God deliberately included that in there. I'll tell you why. So that when then later on we see God having to judge this place, we go, wow, a God of purity and perfection. Faced with that, of course, he has to do this. And so we see... In, in chapter 19 and verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And Lot and his kids get out by the skin of their teeth. And what you see is this, is that Lot, Lot is a righteous man, but unlike Abraham, who is so clear about the evils of that city, he's in the city, but rather than influencing the city, He had been influenced by the city. It says this, uh, David Jackson, a commentator, says this. He says, Our danger, like Lot, is that we become so infected by the scepticism of those around us in Canterbury, so bemused by the apparent security of Sodom, so attached to what we own, to our status, that we hesitate to believe that judgment will ever really come. That's true. Judgment is a hugely politically incorrect thing to talk about. Do you know what? This Bible doesn't make sense if we don't start where it starts. And it starts with God who created a wonderful world that was perfect in every way, and yet so quickly man mucked it up. So quickly man and woman went their own way. And so we see here, in this chapter here, one of the most shocking descriptions in the whole Bible is that these men had come to attack and rape these angels. And so God, understandably, has to bring judgment on this city. The reality is this, is that our prayers for God's patience and mercy to this city and this nation matter because this city and this nation without God face judgment. Face judgment. Christ spoke about judgment an awful lot. He called it hell. Eternal separation from God. Heaven, the exact opposite. Glorious, eternal unity with God. Judgment, ultimately, for our own sin. There was a recent survey in America that said, it was a survey to huge amounts of people, and uh, the results were this, is that 
64% of Americans said that if there is a heaven and a hell, if there is, then 64% of them said they think they get a heaven. Less than 1% said if there's a hell that they would go. I think if they did that same test here, it would be similar. I think most people in this world think the idea of a heaven and a hell is ridiculous. I know I did 11 years ago as an atheist. I thought it was preposterous. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. You know, I'm not like Mugabe or other people. But what we miss when we compare ourselves with others is that's the wrong comparison to make. We have to compare ourselves with him. And friends, we have to we have to feel the weight of, of God on this scripture. We have to feel that this really happened to a real city. And the New Testament tells us that it's a picture of what's going to happen one day. Book of Revelation, it picks up this idea. And it says that one day there really will be judgment across this world. So I'm saying this to us as Christians here today. We need to be a people who pray, not just for our own sakes, not just for the things in our life, not just sporadically when we feel like it. We have to pray because, although God is sovereign, at the same time, he calls us to cry out to the mercy. How are we going to pray for our enemies? The Bible tells us to realize if they don't know Jesus, that even if they're in our, li- in our eyes an enemy, them being judged by a living God outside of Christ, we don't, it's so awful, it will motivate us to pray for them. How do we become a people who are motivated to pray for Canterbury week in, week out, Year in, year out, decade in, decade out. Partly, as Abraham was motivated by the reality of the fact the Bible is clear, is that God is a loving but just perfect judge. We are called to be a people who realise that we're meant to run like Abraham ran. We're meant to be a people who are like Abraham. You may say, but Tom, I feel more like Lot. I feel more like the guy who was in the city and I'm just rubbish and I'm not praying like Abraham. Listen, I want to say, if you're a Christian here today, God would say to you this, is that there is one who lives to intercede, to pray for you. Think about that. In Hebrews it says that Jesus Christ, what is he doing right now? He's interceding for you. He's interceding for Hugh Pierce, for Catherine Atkins, for Ryan Duffel, for Alison Parrish, for every person in this room who knows God. He is praying for us. He's praying that we would pray. He's praying so that we would be a people who give ourselves to prayer. But I want to say this, is if you're a Christian here, it gets even better. It says this, it says actually Christ is in us. Christ the perfect prayer. Abraham got it right on this occasion, but he didn't on many occasions. He was a foreshadow of Jesus, the perfect Abraham, the better Abraham, who never got it wrong, who always interceded for the sake of those around him. And now, if you're a Christian, I can dare to say this, is that he lives in you. So when you think, I can't pray, Tom, you don't understand, it's not true. It's not true. Your truest identity now, as a new creation, is that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus is in you, to say, Abba, Father. What's that? That's prayer. It's what your DNA now is. Believe it. We can be a church who in these days, we can grow whether you're 10 years old, whether you're 110, whether you've been a Christian a week, or whether you've been a Christian 60 years. The reality is this, is if you are a Christian, the Spirit of Jesus lives in you. And he is the most wildly passionate intercessor that will ever exist. And he is in you. It's awesome. But I want to say this, final friends, is if you don't know Jesus here today, my words about judgment, the words about God's judgment upon Sodom should terrify you. Because they terrified me. You know, God is a God of love, but he is a God who is holy. Those are two equal truths together. He's a God to be feared. He's also a God of love. And this is the staggering truth, is that what we see when God poured his righteous judgment on Sodom, 
He answered the prayer of Abraham. He got out those who were righteous. Because the reality is there weren't ten righteous people there. There was just Lot and his kids and his wife. Four. There's not ten. He got them out. He answered the prayer. But this is the amazing thing. Is that that picture of the fury of God, the righteous judgment of God on Sodom, is a picture of what he poured out on his son at Calvary. And in fact, the judgment that Christ felt for all the sin of the world, past, present, and future, was a thousand times worse than fire and sulfur on the heads of those in Sodom. If you're in any doubt today whether, whether God is a God of love as well as a God of holiness, I want to say this as we finish. Who of us in this room would give their child who of us in this room, if you have a child, who of us would give ourselves to go onto that place, Calvary, to take the righteous judgment of God for all the sin of the world? But Christ did it. He went through. He went through so that you and I can scandalously not have to face the judgment for our sin. He faced the fury of all the sin of the world was poured, the wrath of God was poured on him so that today you need never face the judgment of God. You need never face it. You need never face it because Christ faced it on your behalf 2,000 years ago. You say, this is too good to be true. It's not. What do I have to do, Tom, to add to it? How do I get into this? One thing. You just receive it. You can't add to it. It's done. It's good news. It's that God is totally holy who cannot ignore sin. But he is also a God of profound and unbelievable love who would give his only precious son on the cross, the son and the father in total agreement. This is what we're committed to doing. Why? Because we want to see no one face judgment. It's, it's incredible. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the gospel. Is that you can know total freedom from judgment by trusting in his incredible grace 2 Corinthians says this he says for our sakes he made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God it's the great substitution Jesus Christ took all the punishment for your sin so that you and I could be completely forgiven and be given robes of righteousness isn't that awesome? Let's close our eyes. Lord, I want to thank you that you are not a God who holds back on telling us the whole truth. I want to thank you, God, you're not just a God who is just loving. You are a God who is awesome and perfect and holy. And you're a God who will not stand for any injustice. Lord, when we think about even those horrific people across this world, particularly at this time with Comet Relief in Africa, and we think of the injustice done, Lord, your heart bleeds for those who are suffering as a result of wicked men and women. And I thank you, God, that you are a God of justice. Praise God you don't turn a blind eye. But Lord, I know that when it comes to having justice on me, I just want mercy. When I think about the justice that I should be facing, suddenly all I'm all about is mercy. And I thank you, God, that you have made a way without turning a blind eye to sin where you can gloriously accept us because you've dealt with all the righteous wrath upon your son. I just want to give you a chance here today. If you know you're not a Christian and you've been listening to that, I want to say in light of the somber tone of what we've heard, I want to appeal to you to make a response. I want to appeal to you right now just to be bold with everyone's eyes shut, just to pop your hand in the air, just a signal between you and God that you know you want and have to go his way. I want to encourage you right now to raise your hand high in the air. Say, Lord, I want to trust. I want to trust in your righteousness. I want to trust in the cross as the place where you made total, total atonement for my sin. I encourage you right now 
to respond. This is your chance to receive the free gift of forgiveness. Freely given by a loving God. Lord, we love you. We do love you. And we just honour you here today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we're going to come to an end there. And uh, it's funny how, isn't it? Sometimes you finish and you want to punch the air and run out and, you know, you feel full of exuberance. And sometimes God just loves to just bring us into a place of sobriety and, uh, I guess, reflection on the incredible place of privilege that we've got if you're a Christian here today. I just want to invite you, if you want prayer for anything at all, we've got... uh, a wonderful ministry team here will just be gathering over on my right, your left, in red t-shirts. And uh, if you are a visitor here today, we'd love just to say, just to connect with you in our visitor lounge, which is just at the back over there on the right-hand side. Otherwise, have a fantastic week. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, if we don't see you during the week, see you same time, same place, next Sunday. God bless you.